We're so glad to have our evangelist, Elder Mays, here with us tonight, today. And we want him to come and greet the congregation and preach unto us what God has given unto him. Everybody say, God bless Brother Mays. And everybody said, Amen. Everybody say, Amen. Oh, let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise. I feel the Holy Ghost in the house. I said, I feel the Holy Ghost in the house. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Amen, amen, amen. Several years ago, I was working in Sedalia, Missouri, and uh, I just had the opportunity to take my daughter by there the other day where I was working, and, and I told her, I said, right down there, is where I seen that man. And uh, she said, really? And I heard this racket. And uh, it was a man pushing a cart. And he was saying, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I just feel like somebody ought to say, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I asked this man, I said, what in the world is that? He said, that's, yeah, yeah, that's all he does. That's all he says. He goes down, up and down. He said, just pushing that cart. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we ought to just say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Oh, somebody praise him. Amen. Praise God, praise God, amen. Before I get too carried away, I want to say it's good to have Brother Riggin here, amen, amen. And I've been praying for him, believing God for him, and I'm going to still pray and believe God for him, amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, amen, wow. Thank you, Brother Goff, for a wonderful Man, I felt the Holy Ghost in that song service. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you turn me to Romans chapter 13, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, this is a different message. And, uh, but I really feel it. Romans chapter 13, I'm going to start reading at verse number 8, going down through the end of the chapter. When you have it, say read. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. I want to stop here just for a minute. Now, there was a woman who <clears throat> told of her experience as a church secretary. And uh, 
when she would answer the phone, she would always say, Jesus loves you. This is Sharon speaking. How may I help you? But one day she was so distracted because of everything that was going on. And when the phone rang, she answered, Sharon loves you. Jesus speaking. And there was a pause on the line. And then the caller said, somehow I thought your voice would sound different. <laughs> oh, amen. Well, she was partially right. If you don't love your neighbor, something's wrong. Amen. Well, glory to God. That's not my message, but... I don't know why, I just felt like I wanted to say that. Amen. <clears throat> Number 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. My God. Let us, therefore, cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. I want to draw your attention back to verses 11 and 12, which again state, uh, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. It's from this entire Bible reading I want to preach, but it's from these two verses I want to take my text and I want to preach from an unusual subject, but one that I feel is an, I feel is extremely intense burden to preach. It's a subject that has its roots over 50 years ago, at least as far as the story that I'm going to relate goes, but even more relevant for the day and hour that we're living in. It's a Hebrew term that some of you elders or students of world history might possibly be aware of, but I feel that I can safely say that probably most of us have never heard of it. The Hebrew term is spelled E, little n, capital B, R, E-R-A, and that is simply what I want to preach, Embrera, Embrera. Hopefully you'll understand where I'm going, but I want us to pray, and I want us to pray for Brother Toby right now too. I just feel an intense burden for him, and uh, I'm glad that he's made through the surgery. I want us to pray for him. Can we do it right now? And let's pray for the elder while we're praying. God, right now we ask you to reach down in this service. 
God, touch Brother Riggin and touch Brother Toby. I'm asking you, God, let strength, God, and virtue flow through his body. God, I'm asking you to let the power of your word in your name, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you. I'm believing you, God. I'm believing you. I'm thanking you for it. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, God. I'm asking you, God, uh, not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. Uh, God, let your spirit flow to this place. Uh, let the anointing of your word, God, come forth. Uh, anoint me, God. Uh, anoint this vessel. Uh, God, I'm nothing. Uh, God, and I stand before this group of people uh, uh, recognizing I'm nothing, uh, knowing I need your help, knowing I need you, God. Uh, I'm asking you to anoint my lips. Uh, let me utter forth, God, the words that you would speak. Uh, God, I'm asking you in the name of Jesus. I believe you, God. I'm thanking you for it. In the name of Jesus. Everybody, amen. Put your Bibles down. Amen. Put your hands together. Let's clap our hands to the Lord. One more. bless you. Thank you for standing. Amen. In his book entitled The Lion's Gate by author Stephen Pressfield, which he subtitles on the front lines of the Six Days War, he details that nearly 55 years ago, the world began to prematurely write the obituary of the fledgling little nation of Israel. The armies of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon were all poised at her borders, and they were prepared to eradicate the Jewish nation. They had made their intentions known. They had made their boasts and brags loud and clear that they intended to destroy Israel. And none of the world powers were willing to stick their necks out in defense of the Jewish state, not even the United States of America. The descendants of Abraham were once again, just like the children of Israel were so many years ago, standing at the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army coming up far fast behind and seemingly no help, no hope, and standing alone against impossible odds. You see, Israel had 100,000 deployed troops. They had 300 aircraft, 800 tanks, while the Arab Confederation had 240,000 deployed troops over 950 aircraft, and over 2,500 tanks. In other words, the Arabs had nearly two and a half times as many troops and over three times as many aircraft and tanks. The face-off was truly a David and Goliath story. The Arabs controlling an area of land the size of the European Union with Egypt on the southern front Jordan and Assyria on the western front and Lebanon on the northern front. While the Israelis controlled a small sliver of territory the size of New Jersey with the Mediterranean Sea on their eastern front. Israel could field a total strength of 264,000 soldiers, which this included all their reservists. And they could not therefore be 
sustained in battle for any length of time without destroying their entire economy. It's notable that these reservists were not soldiers. They were just normal people. They were cab drivers, farmers, bankers, butchers, teachers, bankers, mechanics, electricians, plumbers, and carpenters. In other words, they were ordinary people from all walks of life. Facing them was 525,000 Arab soldiers, of whom almost half, 240,000, were Egyptian. Israeli tanks were outnumbered more than three to one. 800 Israeli tanks faced 2,424 Arab tanks. Again, about half were Egyptian. The Israeli force could field 350 aircraft, outnumbered almost three to one by 939 Arab aircraft. 450 of them were Egyptian. But as their nation stood on the brink of annihilation, they answered the call to come to her defense. Israel was in a very difficult position. She was forced to fight for her very right to exist, yet her entire army and air force were undermanned. Meanwhile, her adversaries were professional warriors with the best military hardware that money could buy. This is why the world had already begun to write Israel off before the fighting even began because they were facing impossible odds. The Israelis were outmanned, outgunned, and surrounded in every conceivable way. But their forces were more prepared, and they were better trained, and what the world didn't know was that they were going to be defended by one very powerful deity, the Almighty God. I'm not going to take the time to tell of every miracle of that six-day war, but I do want to share this one. Israel, that was his name, was a cab driver uh, who was drafted to fight in the six-day war. He was one of those reservists. And as part of the paratroop unit assigned with conquering the Straits of Tehran, told the following upon his return. I quote, The Israeli soldiers didn't have to parachute out of the Nord airplanes which took them to the Tehran Straits. They landed like spoiled tourists in the airport because the Egyptian regiment which was on guard there fled before the Israeli tr troops were visible on the horizon. After landing, I was sent with another reservist soldier, an electrician, to patrol the area. When we had distanced ourselves two kilometers, about 1.243 miles, an Egyptian half-track appeared before us filled with soldiers and mounted with machine guns on every side. We only had light weapons with a few bullets that couldn't stop the half-track for a second. We couldn't turn back, so we stood there in despair, waiting for the first shot, amen, and for lack of a better idea, we aimed our guns at them. But the shots never did come. The half-track came to a halt, and we decided to cautiously approach it. We found 18 fully armed soldiers sitting inside with guns in their hands with a petrified look on their faces. They looked at us with great fear as though begging for mercy. I shouted, hands up! And we were marching toward them. I had returned to a state of calm. I asked the Egyptian sergeant next to me, tell me, why didn't you shoot at us? He answered, I honestly don't know. My arms froze. They became paralyzed. My whole body was paralyzed, and I don't know why. 
Turned out these soldiers didn't know that the Straits of Tehran were already in Israeli hands. And why didn't they eliminate us? I don't have an answer. But how could anyone say that God didn't help us? Ooh, I feel the Holy Ghost. However, there was a certain mindset among the Jews that cannot be factored into any of the military analysis of the disposition of troops and the assets. The mindset became the deciding factor of this six-day war. It was embodied in the single Hebrew phrase that became the de facto motto of the Israeli military and had the Israeli people as a whole. That phrase was the title of this message in Brera, and it means when there is no alternative or when there is no other choice. Essentially, it is represented, amen, the fact that Israel was fighting for her national existence. There was no more reserve troops. They had already called up all of the reservists. There was no backup plan. There would be no support from anywhere else. The full weight of their national survival rested on their very own soldiers. Every man and woman that went into combat on June the 5th of 1967 did so with the understanding there was no alternatives to victory. They were Israel's last and greatest hope. In Brera meant that they could not settle for anything less than victory. In Brera meant that when they met impossible odds they had to fight anyway because they were all that there was. In Brera meant that when they faced insurmountable obstacles they had to keep going because the hope of Israel was riding on their soldiers. It was an attitude that was embodied in a famous speech given by General Israel Tall, who was also known as Tolik, on the eve of the battle. During the Six-Day War, Yosef bin Hanan was a 22-year-old lieutenant, the junior operations officer of the 7th Armored Brigade. And the brigade was part of Israel Tall's division, which orders were to attack and destroy the Egyptian army in the Sinai Desert. 24 hours before the war begun, Tall gave a speech to his officers and his men. This address is still quoted in Israel and accepted in military journals and academies of war around the world. General Tall's words espoused the principle of aggressive action in the face of overwhelming odds and found this concept upon Israel no of Embrera or no alternative. And here is Lieutenant Yossi describing the moment. This was not General Patton mounting on a big stage. Tolik is a little guy. But when he stands in front of a tank, you know he can take it apart, blindfolded, and put it back together again piece by piece. Uh, Tall has commanded the Armored Corps since 1964. General Tollett tells us his officers and his men that our battle plans are excellent and that he feels confidence that we know them down to the smallest detail. But tomorrow when the war begins, these plans will fly out the window. Nothing, Tall says, will happen according to these plans. The lines 
of assault will change. The direction of the enemy's movement will change. Everything will change. But Talik continues and he says, one thing must take place exactly as in the plans. The principle upon which these plans were founded. Every man will attack. Every unit will push forward as fast as it can. Pay no attention to your flanks. Give no thoughts to resupply. If you lose nine out of ten tanks, keep advancing with the tenth one. Stop for nothing. Other nations can afford to lose the first battle, Talek says, and still recover and carry the day. This will not work for Israel. If we fail in the initial class, our nation will be overrun. The fate of the war on the ground rests with what is in our division, what our division does tomorrow. The survival of our country depends upon us. Now I'm going to tell you something very severe. In Brera, no alternative. The battle tomorrow will be life and death. Each man will assault to the very end, taking no account of casualties. There will be no retreat. There will be no halt. There will be no hesitation. Only forward assault. And General Tullock points on the map to El Aresh, the main base of the Egyptian Army 7th Division. Tomorrow, he says, when things go wrong, remember this only. El Arish. Keep moving toward El Arish. Get there at any cost. I will meet you there and shake your hand. The rest is history. For Israel prevailed against impossible odds. While there is no doubt that they owe the miraculous victory to the blessings of God, uh, there is also little doubt uh, that the Embrera mindset is what was burned in their mind and what carried them through the fiercest of the fighting and compelled them to victory even when the defeat seemed imminent. Uh, They settled the issue before the fight ever began. Uh, There can be no surrender. There can be no defeat because we are the only plan. And I've come to this pulpit today with a message for this assembly I want to make sure you understand that God's divine will and plan for this church this church is God's plan for reaching this city and this community this is it there is no other plan there is no other alternative God has no other plans to reach the world except through this church he has no other plans to minister to the lost and the hurting except through us Come on, let's praise him. Can I tell you, God has no other way to mend the brokenhearted, to bring healing to those who are sick in body and spirit, to bring hope to those that are hopeless, except through those of us. God has no other plan to demonstrate his power and his authority, except through the church. At the risk of being repetitious, I want you to understand that God has chosen to reach a lost world through his church, and that is it. That is all there is. It's the church, the church, the church, the church, the church.
the church isn't perfect. Uh, I said we're not perfect. Uh, it's in it, my God, we're not composed of religious professionals. It isn't made up of men and women who are trained specifically for this purpose. No, we're just a group of people that God has filled with his spirit. And I feel the Holy Ghost. Much like that small Israeli army that took to the field that day in the Six-Day War. The church is composed of volunteers. It's composed of ordinary men and women, factory workers, car salesmen, computer technicians, truck drivers, healthcare professionals, carpenters, plumbers, amen, cab drivers, electricians, normal men and women. But we have a few things in common. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We we have been forgiven. Our sins have been washed away in the precious name of Jesus. And God has filled us with the Holy Ghost. Woo, these are the ties that bind us together, that make us into a church, that make us into a church. Yes, we all have our faults. I said we all have our flaws. We all make mistakes. Not one of us is perfect, but we are the church. And God has fully invested himself in the church for the purpose of saving the world. This is the body of Christ in this world. This is the very means by which God has chosen to manifest his mercy and his grace. The hope of an entire world rests upon the shoulders of the church. Nothing is closer to the heart of God than saving the lost. It is the very centerpiece of this Bible. Amen. It's the root core of everything. God became a man. He robed himself in flesh. He walked upon this earth for a singular purpose. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that purpose is what drove him to the cross. That purpose is what compelled him to laid down his life to shed his blood so that others might live. It was the supreme mission of heaven. He died so that you and I might live. Oh, somebody ought to praise him right now. Oh, we know. Oh, we know that. We fully comprehend that. But what you may not fully comprehend today is when all of it was said and done, when the cross was finished, when he walked out of that tomb, when Jesus Christ finished his work on this earth he left it in the hands of a small group of men and women called the church the church the church oh God 
God. The most amazing work that God did was not the creation of the universe or of the sun and the planets. The most amazing work that God did was accomplished on the cross. The cross is the single greatest demonstration of his supreme power and the glory of God. At the cross, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. At the cross, God so loved the lost that he made a way to shed his own blood for them. At the cross, God made himself a little lower than the angels that he might suffer death for every man. At the cross, he defeated sin and led captivity captive. No wonder the old hymn says, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. But when it was finished, when it was all said and done, he left it in the hands of the church. I cannot tell you today how incredibly important the church really is. Words would fail to express the magnitude of the confidence and the purpose that God has invested in us church this conglomeration of people this mixture of humanity this diverse group of individuals that make up the church this is the hope of an entire world brother golf when I stop and think about it and how little I've done I'm ashamed It is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the presence and the power of God in his church corporately and each one of us individually. It's the only hope this lost world has. I want you to stop and think about it for a moment. God went to incredible lengths to secure salvation of the lost. He went so far as to robe himself in flesh. He didn't trust that mission to anyone else. God did. He addressed the sin problem himself. However, when it comes to the propagation of the message of the cross, when it comes to reaching the world with the message of salvation, God has fully invested his confidence in us, in the church. Listen, church, I want you to hear this. We need to hear this. We are only God's only plan. There is no alternative. There is no backup plan. There is no plan B. There is no other option. It's in prayer. I said it. 
oh God, it's in prayer. We are the church. We are the people of God. And we are God's plan for this city and for this community, for this hour. If God saves anyone right here, he's going to do it through you, 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 you. If God ministers to the hurting and the wounded, he will do it through us. Amen. If God sets captives free and breaks the bonds of addiction, he will do it through us. God will not come down in our community and call men to repentance. He will send us. God, I feel the Holy Ghost. He's going to send us. God will not reach out his hand to the brokenhearted. He will send us. God will not stretch forth his hand to heal anyone in our community. He will send us to stretch forth our hand. You have to grasp the importance of this. God has placed himself in our hands. God has placed the effectiveness of his single's greatest work in our hands. We are the church. We are God's chosen vessel. And it's up to each one of us to deliver him to a lost and dying world. We're the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We're the messengers of the cross of Calvary. We are called out of this world to take this message to this world. Amen. We are called out of this world to take this message to the world. I said, I'm going to repeat it one more time. We are called out of this world to take this message to the world. I said, we're called to declare hope to the hopeless. We're called to bring peace to those in chaos, to bring healing to the hurting, and to bring whosoever will to the cross. I want somehow today to impress upon you the urgency and the importance of your calling as a church. A lost world is counting on us to deliver the saving message of Jesus Christ to them. A world of lost people is dying around us, condemned to a devil's hell, and we are their only hope. We have the only answer. If we don't tell them, nobody will. If we don't reach them, no one will. God has commissioned the church with his greatest work. And he has no other plan. Spiritually speaking, the hope of our community, the eternal future of every man and woman here, rests on our soldiers. If we don't reach them, if we don't bring them to the cross, if we don't share with them the incredible grace of God, no one will. During those fateful sick days of the 1967 war, Israeli army would be faced with insurmountable opposition over and over again. Each time it seemed as if the advance would falter, individual soldiers would remind themselves that the hope of their nation rested upon their shoulders. If I fail, they would say, Israel fails. If I am defeated, my nation will be defeated. In prayer, there is no alternative. I truly believe we're entering a new season. I truly believe that God is doing a work of renewal and restoration for the purpose of refocusing us, focusing us on our primary mission of reaching the lost 
And you can agree with me or disagree with me. I feel like God has placed COVID-19 for such a time as this. And you can back up and you can, you can uh, quit coming to church. Uh, you can walk away. Uh, but you're missing out on a golden opportunity. Uh, because of that, I am convinced it's high time for the church to awake. Uh, to be stirred with the same kind of conviction uh, that compelled Israel to battle. Uh, it's time for us to recognize uh, this is not just something we do. Uh, it's not just a portion of our lives. Uh, this means everything. Uh, church isn't just something that you're a part of. Of. The church is who you are. It's not just something you do on Sunday and on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night. It is what you are made for. God formed you in your mother's room for that purpose. He didn't make you to be a banker. He didn't make you to drive a forklift. He didn't invest life in you so you could draw a paycheck, build a home, have a family, save up for retirement. There's more to your life than this. God formed you with purpose. And the greatest purpose in your life is the ministry of the cross. God made you to be the church long before he ever called you out of life of sin. He has a divine purpose in your life. Long before he ever filled you with the Holy Ghost, he formed you for a greater purpose. And I believe that God is bringing the church to a place of renewal and revival. We are here indeed entering a new season and God is about to refresh and revitalize this church to accomplish his purpose. I know I already said it, but I believe that God allowed this COVID-19 pandemic to bring the true church into revival. This will be a season of revival, but that revival rests on our shoulders. In prayer, there is no alternative. We are the church. I don't know what time it is, but I gotta preach. In our text, the Apostle Paul confronts the church in Rome with the fact that they have been lulled to sleep. There are some who were once seized by the power of the cross, but now are held in the grip of weariness and exhaustion. There are some who were once driven by passion, but now they're drifting through life without any real purpose. And there are others who were called by God out of darkness into his marvelous light, who have now begun ever so slowly to drift back to the life that they had abandoned. And in our text, the Apostle Paul pleads with them to awaken out of sleep, to stir themselves, to recognize again the purpose for which they were called. The truth, the unfortunate truth is we are all human and we are all vulnerable to the trap being lulled to sleep by the relentless repetition of life. Never, we never intend to get to the place where we're sleepwalking through life. 
We never intend to get to the place where we feel the call or the call of God on our lives has yielded to the daily demands of getting up, living, working, and supporting a family. We never intend to come to a place where forward momentum slows to a grind, where personal spiritual growth gives way to sluggish apathy. But it happens. It happens. I don't think there's a one of them, myself included, that are exempt. It happens so slowly that we aren't even aware that it is happening. Old attitudes begin to become part of our personality again. Oh, God, help me. Old hurts begin to hinder our walk with God. Bitterness that we thought was buried raises its ugly head once again and begins to govern our lives. And if we're not careful, we slowly but surely begin to lose forward motion. And the great cause of Christ, which has been entrusted to the church, suffers because the church has lost its momentum. What do we do in those times? What do you do when the church is low to sleep? Paul's answer is very simple. You wake up, said wake up, wake up. You can almost hear the alarm in Apostle Paul's voice. It's high time to wake out of sleep. It's high time to recognize the purpose for which you live. It's high time to be revived and renewed in God because the hour's at hand. The night is nearly gone and the day is about to break. Amen. Before too long, it's going to be too late to reach our world with the gospel. There is a sense of urgency in the voice of the Apostle Paul. There is a sense of immediacy. The night is far spent. The dawn is coming. Wake up before it's too late. I believe that it's time for the church to awaken. God help me to wake up from a slumber and recognize the hour we are in and the purpose which we're made. We are the church. Somebody say, I am the church. I'm the church. I'm the church. I'm the church. General Tall told those Israeli officers and his men on that historic day, there's going to come a moment when the circumstances of the battle are going to overwhelm you. And we've all been there. In that moment, when success or failure rests upon your decision, remember these words in Brera. There's no alternative. The hope of your nation is resting on your shoulders. It's the end of an old season, and it's the beginning of a new season. Uh, the old season was marked by struggles, uh, by weariness and exhaustion. Uh, and now there are some under the sound of my voice uh, that have almost been overwhelmed by the circumstances of the battle. Uh, I want you to realize today uh, just how much is riding on you. Uh, success or failure depends on what you do right now. Uh, you can either embrace 
embrace the hope of a new season and turn your heart toward heaven and beseech the Lord for a personal revival or you can settle back into the rut that you've been stuck in for so long but before you make that choice let me remind you of one thing it's in prayer there is no alternative the hope of a lost world is resting on our shoulders will you answer the call will you embrace anew God's plan and purpose for your life will you make the sacrifices that are necessary musicians hurry up and come amen amen are you willing to surrender yourself amen your will and your plans to the cause of Christ are you ready to surrender your whole person to the cause of Christ Jesus said that no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God God is calling this church to complete consecration to an undivided focus on the plan and the purpose of God God wants to give us revival in this church and the question is simple are you willing to commit yourself to the call I wonder if the church is ready to be the church. Let me say it again. Is the church ready to be the church? I wonder, would you find yourself a place in an altar today and pray until God ignites a fresh spirit of revival in you? on everyone find yourself a place to pray God ignite a spirit of revival in me first God right now in Jesus name touching God touch me now renew me renew me in the Holy Ghost God renew me in the Holy Ghost